Mid-market sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. On today's episode of Mid-Market Matters, I'm joined by someone I've known for a very long time. She's a CPA, but has a degree in applied psychology, and I must get 20 or 30 newsletters every month. The only one, the only one that I read every single time is our guest today, Bree Williams, from People Patterns, and that's the the name gives you a very big clue about what it's all about. Bree, firstly, thanks for joining us. Thank you, and that is high praise indeed, Craig. If you're um if you're ripping into my newsletter every couple of weeks, that's terrific. I seriously, it's one of the only ones I read every single time. I never miss because there's always something quite interesting in there. And uh, look, I think you know it's a really interesting area to understand how and why people make the decisions they make and how that influences you know our our communications our website our marketing materials our sales process and in fact our products and pricing so maybe with a little bit of background you're a CPA but you've got a degree in applied psychology tell me how does an accountant become a psychologist <laughs> I will say that I did them in parallel so I did the psychology and the finance degrees concurrently as a double degree so I would say that I have always had a foot in each camp Craig so I haven't made a clear break <laughs> between them um, but I saw very much my interest was always in psychology but in order to get into business I thought a, a great path to take was the finance path because every business ends up with an accountant at some point so yes. And it's such a great fundamental skill to have, isn't it, being able to read the numbers and not be terrified of them. So that's really why I moved into finance. And my first job was in finance um, in a sales accounting function, so working very closely with the sales team. But I always had an interest and linked the psychology in whatever role I had. So I've worked in um, finance, as I said, I've worked in human resources, I've worked in um, product management, and I did that for 10 years across a couple of different organisations. And the through line through all of that work has been the psychology. So how do people, how do our customers engage with our product? How do our um, colleagues work together? All of those human aspects, which I think is so fundamental to business. As as you've mentioned, there's a there's an underpinning of psychology in every touch point in business, and yet often in business we don't think of that dimension. Yeah, so it's interesting. You, you, you're often described as the behaviour explainer, and I think it's so important for people to understand, you know, why do people make the decisions they make? Why do they behave the way they behave? Tell us a little bit about what you what you see there and how you've actually applied that to the business world. Yeah, and it's an interesting starting point, isn't it? And often when I am training people in the techniques that I that I use, I, I start from the position that everything in business is about behaviour. We don't rock up to work thinking, hey, I'm a behaviour change expert. Um, I might be a finance person or I might be, well, marketing is more expressly related to, to that, but I might be in payroll. But all throughout our day, we are trying to work with and through others and oftentimes the source of our frustration and the source of any inefficiency within our 
in our workforce or our work day personally is because we're butting our heads up against a brick wall and it's usually mm. not getting traction with the people that we're trying to to work with. And so that's really the starting point, always thinking about our work as I need to change someone's behaviour. If I need to get someone to click a button, that's behaviour change. If I need my supplier to, to extend the terms, that's a behaviour change. If I need to get a customer, of course, to buy, well, that's a behaviour change. So all throughout our work, we are behaviour change experts, although we're never trained in that. And mm. so that's what I bring to market. I'm really helping people identify how to get other people to do what you want them to and overcome any resistance that you may encounter. So that means less frustrating, uh, less frustration for you and better results. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how that actually applies day to day because you're right. I mean, whether we're selling products or services to somebody that's behavioural and, uh, you know, we're getting them to change their behaviour by making a decision or signing an order form or whatever it might be, but we're also working with people every day. We're also marketing ourselves on websites and social media. And all of that actually comes back to trying to influence someone's behaviour, often in a sales context, but not always. Even in the household, Craig, <laughs> trying yeah. to influence our friends and family all the time. I mean, we're seeing our government um, in the current climate trying to influence behaviours. So it's all around us. Um, we're subject to it ourselves as consumers, most obviously, but... Uh, I think sometimes we we forget in our workplace that our function really is to shift the dial on how other people are receiving our message and how we want them to to do that. So we might think of, for instance, one of our issues might be cash flow. If you pull apart cash flow, well, what is cash flow? You've got a few different dimensions to look at. So, for instance, you know, selling more, well, that's a behaviour issue, behavioural issue, trying to get people to buy, and that means how, how you express your pricing could be something that you work on or how you convince them of value. Um, it could be getting them to pay on time if you have a cash flow issue. So that's a, an, another behavioural um, mm. challenge. And even on the other side of the equation, trying to influence your suppliers to extend trading terms, for instance, that, again, has a behavioural underpinning. So whatever, um, it, however we express a business challenge we're facing, if you pull it apart, it really comes back to I need someone to change from what they're currently doing to what I want them to do and how is the best and most efficient way of me doing that. It's interesting. i never forget many years ago you looked at our website when we were first doing some work together and I'd written many, many articles about how uh, how few baby boomers had actually done anything about succession. And, you know, I had all the research to show that only two out of 20 people over 65 have thought about blah, blah, blah. And you sort of came back to me very interestingly and said, well, that's actually not the right message. I said, what do you mean? It's absolutely right. The research is absolutely right. But the messaging was wrong because what I was doing was actually normalising that behaviour and just saying, well, if only two out of 20 people have done it, I don't really need to worry about it. And that was the first time I sort of thought, wow, this is a very different approach. And it's really important to understand, you know, people write posts on LinkedIn or social media all day, every day. And often I look at them now and think, geez, that's not what that person's trying to communicate. Well, it's probably what they're trying to communicate, but it's certainly not what they need to influence behaviour. It's interesting, isn't it? You can't unsee these techniques once you uh, once, yes. once they are revealed to you. So the field that I use is a field called behavioural economics, which some of your listeners might have come across, and that is very much the exploration 
of what's going on below the surface. So what are the unconscious drivers of our behaviour? And you mentioned my business name is People Patterns, and the patterns part of that is very much that we're, we're kind of humans are wired to make decisions in a particular way. And if we understand the wiring, then we can predict what people are likely to do. So you were talking about you know, two out of 20 or what have you, well, that's an incorrect use of a social norm. So the behavioural principle here is a social norm. And once we understand that people are influenced by others, then we can use that in different domains. So instead, we'd we'd be expressing that sentiment in a different way. So um, if two out of 20 people are doing it, that's a very small number. And as you said, it's normalising inaction around Mm. what you want them to do. So you've got to come up with a stat that instead is going to support um, stimulating an appetite for change. And I guess most people, I mean, I certainly didn't, you know, I never thought of that at all. I'd write all these, and I'm right prolifically, I still do, but, you know, it would always be based on research out of Harvard, you know, X, Y, Z happens without really understanding underlying, as you said, below the surface, What's the unconscious behaviour driver that's actually making that happen? Um, And it's interesting, as you said, when you start looking at these things, you see them everywhere. And I think the sentiment there is, because I often hear about people saying, oh, you've got to listen to your customers, you know? Listen to your customers and that will give you the answer. And I say, no, 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 no. (laughs) Listening to your customers might give you a sense of what they're thinking, but it doesn't mean that that will be actually what they end up doing. So we need, because they are rationalising, they are justifying, they are thinking about whatever you are asking them, for instance, in a focus group or in an interview, they're they're giving you what they think is probably an honest answer and a rational answer, but it's a rationalised answer. So the the one I often talk about, because I used to work at White Pages, the the phone directory company, and um, with the print directory, we used to ask people, what would make you use the print directory more? Now, this was a long time ago, of course, Craig, but, (laughs) but people would tell me, oh, well, if you put a schedule of bin weeks in the book. So I'd flip to the book. It's already on the on the table in the kitchen. And it would say, well, this week it's a recycling bin and next week it's the green waste bin. That would yep. be really helpful. So that would pe- be people giving us, you know, an intended behaviour. If, if it was in the book, then I would do that. I would use the book more. But the natural behaviour when we're looking to put our bins out is what? look up the street and see what everyone else has got out. Exactly. Spot yeah. on. So that means we've got this gap between what people believe they want and they tell you they want and what they'll actually do. So the field of behavioural economics for me is very much that gap filler. It's the um, it's the missing link. And that's why oftentimes we, we burn a lot of money and time in our customer insights functions, asking our customers, we do what they tell us to and we don't shift the dial. So instead what we need to do is anticipate what we know about these patterns and we can use that in tandem perhaps with what they're telling us as a little bit of an inkling of the sentiment, but don't rely wholly on what people tell you. Yeah, it's interesting because there are sales trainers and people, you know, listen to your customers and ask questions and you sort of go, yes, you do do that, but that's not the end. That's not the whole answer anyway. It might be part of it, but it's and not so, the whole answer. And same with stakeholders. So if you're in an internal business unit, and I had this example when I worked in the corporate sector, 
you know, I'd, I'd be putting business cases together and, and my stakeholders would tell me, oh, Bree, just if you could cut the numbers this way or if you do this or if you do that, I'll definitely come on board. And I would do that and they still wouldn't come on board. So this is the gap and this is why people get frustrated because it's like, well, hang on, I'm doing everything that seems sensible. People say, oh, it should be common sense. It should be a no-brainer and yet I'm not getting traction. So if you want me to share, Craig, I'm happy to share um, some the three barriers that that are standing in the way of it's getting people to change their behaviour. Yeah, perfect. Let's do yeah. that. Absolutely. So the first challenge that we have to overcome is apathy. So that is when people just cannot be bothered doing what you want them to. So I sometimes refer to this as laziness, and I mean laziness in a cognitive sense. So they just don't like to think about things. We're very much governed by our habits. So we're creatures of habit. So when our, our first challenge, when we're, we're trying to get people from what they're currently doing to what we want them to do is say, how do we engage people? So how do we overcome this apathy? Now, one of the recipes that um, that I talk to people about is making sure that whatever reward you are offering, so whatever the payoff is, whatever the good stuff is that they're attracted to, has to be almost double whatever effort is required of them. So, for instance, in banking, we might all feel frustrated with our banks and we say, oh, God, I'm going to, I'm going (laughs) to, another scandal, I'm going to shift my bank, and yet we don't. So why? Well, part of it might be apathy and part of it might be the, the reward for changing our behaviour, so it might be a more slightly more favourable interest rate, isn't greater than the effort in changing all of our direct yeah. debits and doing all of the paperwork and doing all of that sort of stuff So and getting all new cards and all or whatever. So because of that, Whilst we might express an intent for wanting to change banks, we're not going to because we just ultimately can't be bothered. So always make sure that the reward is much greater than the effort. Now, that can go from even clicking a button on your website, making sure that they know that there's good stuff at the end of that that button click. Um, So that's the first problem we've got to resolve, apathy or laziness. The second is paralysis so this is decision paralysis or overwhelm this is when we over overladen people with so many decision points and choices that they their eyes roll back in the back of their heads and they go oh god i just don't know what to do so i'm not going to do anything yeah you hear people talk about paralyzed by choice that's what you talk about right exactly this is the paradox of choice and the and the science here was very much that um we always think um, more is more, so give people more choice and they're more likely to take action when in actual fact that can get them further away from a decision because they've got more regret. If I take that product, I'm not taking any other product. Now, I'm, I've am i been researching, you know, cameras, for instance, like everyone getting webcams and whatever. Yep. And it, I'm just paralysed by how many choices there are. So as a result, you know, I'm just do dealing with whatever I have at the moment rather than buying anything new. So paralysis is the second barrier that we have to address. And the third and final one, and this is the, the one I think particularly you've noticed in succession planning, Craig, is anxiety. Yep. People are scared about changing. So even if I click that button, if I don't know where that button is going, if I have anxiety about what happens when I commit to that action, I'm not going to do it, even if I'm interested, so apathy is not an issue, and I know what to do, so paralysis isn't an issue. 
I might still feel anxious about taking that leap. And so, yes, a small-scale thing might be clicking a button and larger-scale issue might be if I put money, more money into superannuation and I can't unlock it and then the financial circumstances change and I can't get, that, can't get access to that money, well, guess what? I'm just not going to put more money into superannuation. Yep. So th those are the three barriers. If we can I, I identify and anticipate those as points of resistance, we can then devise strategies and solutions to mitigate each of those. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, so many aspects of running a business covers those areas. It's not just about selling to customers. It's about managing staff. It's about dealing with suppliers, dealing with our shareholders. You know, it, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's every interaction that you're having. So if you're having a phone conversation or an email or you're launching a marketing campaign, and as you say, it's all sorts of different constituencies. So it's mm -hmm. it's clients, it's stakeholders, it's um, suppliers, it's investors. Any person or pe group of people that you're trying to influence, these barriers will be uh, in play or may be in play. And um, any sort of scale of issue, so I've mentioned clicking a button, that's a micro, you know, a small yeah. issue. Superannuation, getting under 35s to contribute to superannuation, well, that's a large-scale issue, but same barriers. So you can you can use these same three barriers to work through any scale of issue across any industry because guess what? There are people at the end of the day that we need to get people to do something different, and so th these are the patterns that we can we can address. Yeah, look, I think it's just fascinating to see how the, how widely this impacts on leaders and owners of businesses and CEOs, et cetera. But I'm interested to hear maybe a couple of case studies or examples of where people have actually used this to improve a process or a marketing tool or a communication piece, uh, with, even internally with, with employees, et cetera. Just some case studies from you around what's worked well when people get this right. And then I'll ask you about people that get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, so a couple of examples because, um, I mean, the beauty of it, as I say, you can use it across any sort of industry. So I've worked across some very interesting different groups. One of the one of my favourites was a um, a pest inspection service uh, on the New South Wales coast, and so one of their challenges was getting people to pay for a, a pest inspection on a new property when, in, in actual fact. They, the person might not end up buying the property, so they might lose out at auction, for instance. Yep. And so you, you kind of feel that you've, I'm going to spend a few hundred dollars or up to $1,000 on a, pet in, a pest inspection all for nothing. So yes. we reworked re, re their website to really carry those messages. And so we've been able to increase their, um, their rate of uh, conversion to inquiry through their website by making sure that the messages are correct and overcoming that barrier, which was anxiety. I'm going to, this is wasted money if, you know, I don't end up, I don't end up buying it. Yeah. yeah. So that um, was one case study, which is, and, and websites, I should say, are a little microcosm. They're a nice little case study in behaviour because you're trying to influence people, but you're not there to do it. So yeah. Websites are a really nice um, sort of microcosm of, of behavioural influence. And another case study, I was working with a large uh, government organisation and they were 
you know, sending out a lot of letters to their um, constituents and the letters really were <laughs> backfiring on them because they were generating more inbound calls when they didn't want those inbound calls. So people were left confused by their communications and and nervous about those communications because the messaging wasn't right. So we uh, we did a whole lot of training with the, um, the group that were in charge of the communications and I also, you know, participated in the writing of the letters to help them configure them in a way that improved um, the cut through of the message. So it was a bit, it was definitely a win-win. So the person receiving the message knew what, knew what it was about. They didn't necessarily go through the turmoil of um, any sort of anxiety related to the issue. They, they had clarity on what they were to do or whether they didn't have to do anything. And um, and it set an, a more friendly tone. So apathy was sort of washed away because it was more engaging. You know, we did things mm -hmm. like using people's name, surprise, surprise, <laughs> rather than <Hello. laughs> rather than sort of um, an anonymous uh, treating people as an anonymous uh, cog in the in the cycle. So and that um, those letters, all of that work has alleviated the pressures on the inbound group, and it's of course, improved satisfaction as well. So their constituents are happier and they're also, the organisation isn't getting slammed with p unhappy people on the phones. So those are a couple of, um, to contrast, a couple of different scale of intervention that we can do, that, that we have done and, um, yeah, had, had success with. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting because you often look at even large corporates who you would think would have this sorted. You know, you see a TV ad or something on a website or a newsletter and think, oh, my God, that there's no way that would encourage me to use those people or to buy something from them or to deal with them because they just haven't got this part right. You look at, you know, often we see TV ads. I've, I've got several. I sit here sometime with my sons who are, you know, in their 20s now watching TV thinking, what are they thinking? You know, the boys, have, I actually, one of my sons has said to me, you know, why would anyone buy insurance from that company, Dad? That's just a stupid ad. How do they get it so wrong? It is interesting, isn't it? And I, I my background is in working uh, in large corporates. And so a lot of the frustration I was holding was when I then moved into my own business because I came across behavioural economics and I thought that's exactly the fusion of my finance and my psychology. Mm. So that's exactly what I want to bring to the world. But um, whilst the science is great, it's not really being translated to a business context. And so that's that's the work that I do, try and take the science and, and pull it back into, well, what does it mean if I'm going to write an email? So, so bringing it back that way. Yes, so every time I listen to any talk back and they're complaining about a large bank or a large telco or a large utility provider, I think I've worked in them. I can see why <laughs> they don't get it right. Um, mm. And I tried to get behavioural economics really when I was in my very early um, stages within the organisation tried to get traction for it, but unfortunately, I didn't have the skills that I now do ten years later to to get traction. So they have to use me as a consultant. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Good on you. I think you're right. I think we sometimes look at the large organisations, but oftentimes they are the you know it's hard to turn a large ship around and all those sorts of things. So the mid tier firms are you know they're the sweet spot because you know there's opportunity to really be more nimble about doing things differently and possibly more a desire to. And I think that's why it's such an exciting space. Yeah. So let's let's explore that a little bit further. You know, 
somebody's listening, they're the owner of a mid-market business, they've got a couple of hundred people, they're, they're, they're doing well, but they've never really thought about this. Where do they start? How do they get started on this journey to find out what needs to be done? Well, the first thing is really to think about any points of frustration that within your business you're having. So are there, what are the um, sort of blockages? Because ultimately there'll be a behavioural basis for that. So um, we talked about cash flow, for instance, or it might be I'm not getting traction with productivity with my with my team or, you know, we're putting these new policies out and no one's, no one's following them. So thinking about your business and what's keeping you up at night and the frustrations that you're holding, well, ultimately they can be brought back to, what's going on from a behavioural perspective and where are we, What? where is the resistance coming from? Now, in terms of engaging me, it's very much about working the model that I sort of described very loosely of those three barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually in an engagement, I, um, I like to transfer knowledge. So that means training, some sort of training. So I have an online program called Influencing Action, um, which some organisations are going through. Uh, in a world without lockdown, it would normally be face-to-face training or something sure. of that nature because ultimately this is about problem solving and whilst it's great to have me in for a short period of time and we can certainly do that and for, for clients I do sort of do like an audit of their business to understand where the, the gaps are and then provide recommended solutions, ultimately best traction is going to be for the teams that you have around you to do this thinking for themselves. And so that's where the training component really comes comes through. So it's very much about identifying what the behavioural objective is in your business. So I want to get person from point A, what they're currently doing to point B, what I would like them to do, and then how can I anticipate and overcome those three barriers of apathy, paralysis and anxiety. Fantastic. So just before we wrap up, um, what's your number one tip for business owners? My number one, yeah, my number one tip is to think from a behavioural change perspective. So rather than label it with, you know, this is a finance problem or a sales problem or what have you, think about it from the perspective of I need to change someone's behaviour. And that lens will then bring the um, the human resistance to the fore. And then you're dealing with the issue from that perspective. So rather than throwing out or throwing new more policies and more emails and more marketing, rather than throwing all of those things out, firstly coming back to, well, if this is a behavioural change issue, what's the objective here and then how are we going to address it? So, So starting from that perspective I think is very helpful. Fantastic. Um, So how do people get in touch with you? Craig, they can pop onto my website, Bree Williams, it's B-R-I, just to be tricky, breewilliams.com, and they'll find everything they need to know about me there. Otherwise, I'd love uh, for people to connect with me through LinkedIn as well. They can find me, Bree Williams, and that would be terrific if they mention uh, they heard me on this very podcast. Fantastic. Bree, thanks for joining us, as usual. Uh, lots of really interesting ideas and information to help influence behaviour. Um, and just that number one tip, think about the behavioural change perspective, not so much this is a finance problem or this is a marketing problem. Thanks for joining us, Bree. Have a great day. You too, Craig. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mid-Market Matters. I hope you found this episode helpful and informative for your business. 
To find out more, go to midmarketmatters.com.au. And to download other episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.